Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 54. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, the votes are in, and we have ourselves a winner for the 2007 People's Choice Drabblecast Awards. We pulled together all the stories that generated the most positive listener feedback and asked you listeners to vote for the story you enjoyed the most. After the first round, it came down to four stories. Episode 25, The Worm Within by Vincent Eaton. Episode 29, Code Brown by Dermot Glennon. Episode 39, The Beekeepers by J. Allen Pierce. And episode 43, Jelly Park by Aaliyah Whiteley. I really thought it was cool how these four stories were very different, but in the end, also representative, to some degree, of all the things that make the Drabblecast the Drabblecast. Gross, humorous, disturbing, creative, and fun. The first ever sacred Drabblecast chalice of glory, with engravement design by our very own super-awesome graphic designer, Bo Kyer, of Super Animal Deathmatch Competition Notoriety, should be done soon, and we'll be sure to snap some photos of it and throw those up in the forum before we ship that puppy out to the winner. Ah, yes, the winner. Well, in this politically correct, proactive, supportive, no-child-left-behind cultural climate we live in today, I'm mandated to say that we're all winners, and that as long as you believe in yourself and follow your heart, the aliens will never win, and will always figure out a way to alter that asteroid's collision course. In the case of good flash fiction, though, I think that empty saccharine feel-goodery is more or less justified. I'm not a professional writer, (laughs) not even close, but I am aware, as all of you are, I'm sure, of the effect that good writing and good storytelling has. It can pull you away for just a few minutes to some new, strange place where worms are smarter than humans or jellyfish do drugs. In flash fiction, you only get a glimpse of that world. You have to soak in as much as you can, as quick as you can, before you're back home again. Then, when you're back home, you maybe think to yourself, meh, I didn't really like it there, or didn't really work for me. Or maybe you're left wanting to know more about that world, but your little eight-minute visit is over, and now you'll just have to guess why that ocean is full of poison, or if that pumpkin was alive or not. Either way, good flash fiction stories are your super-cheap, ultra-quick bus ride to some place completely different. You're back by dinner time, and you've got something to talk about other than who was booted off American Idol last week. It'll probably be Kate Malloy, by the way. So yeah, all you writers out there, just because you haven't won the sacred Drabblecast Chalice of Glory doesn't mean you haven't created meaningful and effective work. You're all jolly bus drivers, in a sense, taking us somewhere new and tossing us lime-flavored jelly packets along the way. If you haven't gotten the hint by now, yes... The winner of the 2007 People's Choice Drabblecast Award is Aaliyah Whiteley for her story, 
Jelly Park, episode 43. If you'd like to read more of Aaliyah's work, check out her website at aaliyahwhitely.com. Her newest novel, Light Reading, is available now through Macmillan Press. Well, it's in the same spirit of competition that we present to you this week's Drabble story. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words long. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called Olympic Gold by Kelly Zanfordino. Her toes were at the edge of the platform, arms at her side. She tuned out the noise from the audience, focusing. She took the silver in the last Olympics. This performance must be worthy of a gold. It would be her last. She'd had enough of the constant practice and no social life. She was 17, soon to graduate and be free. She took a deep breath, bent her knees, and pushed off. Her body rotated, completed two somersaults, three twists, and straightened. Her hands above her head in a prayer-like manner toward her death on the pavement below. Ouch. Well, our feature story this week is called Unholy Fruit by Kurt Kirchmeier. Kurt is proudly Canadian, happily married, and eagerly awaiting the birth of his next fictional child. His stories have found homes in a variety of venues, including Coyote Wild, Kaleidotrope, Murky Depths, and Shimmer. Unholy Fruit originally appeared in issue number 15 of the Horror Fiction Review. For more info, visit Kurt online at kurtkirchmeier.com. So without further ado, Unholy Fruit by Kurt Kirchmeier. The demon oranges, one for every tree in Roland's orchard, appeared on an otherwise average Tuesday morning. After a hearty breakfast, including no less than six poached eggs and a full pound of bacon, Roland poured himself three fingers of brandy and shuffled out onto his porch, intent on spending the bulk of his day brooding over his forthcoming demise. That's when he spotted the first one. Hanging from a branch on the nearest tree, it looked for all the world like an everyday orange, albeit a rather large one. Hot damn, Roland said, swinging around to set his glass on the stool beside his porch chair. Although he'd enumerated a dozen restoration and fertility spells just three nights before, hoping the cryptic verses would somehow nurse the trees back to health and allow them to once again bear fruit, He'd been under the impression the words had fallen on deaf ears. He turned back to survey the rest of the orchard, shaking his head in wonder. Black magic worked after all. The orchard, a family-owned business spanning four generations, was teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, its trees having fallen victim to the coldest winter in memory. That, and a severe case of alienation on Roland's part. Don't you be a lazy fool! His wife, June, had instructed him on her deathbed. You cover them trees with plastic, you hear? My crystals told me old man Winter's coming with a vengeance this year. Roland, 
Never a believer in the so-called dark arts that June had devoted so much of her life to, took the advice with a grain of salt and a roll of his eyes. That is to say, he ignored it entirely. By the time he realized she'd been right, it was already too late. Consequently, he ended up spending the winter doing what he did best, getting drunk and hoping things would somehow work themselves out on their own. Spring had sobered him quickly, if not completely. Roland skipped off the porch and made a beeline for the nearest tree, failing to notice until he got within three paces that the oversized orange was moving. Not much, but enough to rule out the wind as a possible cause. Eyes narrowed, he stopped dead in his tracks. And don't you be touching them texts, June had continued with her deathbed lecture. Just cause most of them spells never work for me, don't mean they ain't dangerous. Heck, in the hands of a fool like you, they're likely to bring about Armageddon itself. You burn them. Burn them all! Again, Roland had chosen to disregard the nugget of advice, thinking the books might fetch him a tidy sum from some collector of things arcane. Not that he'd actually attempted to sell them. That would have required labor, and Roland was in no condition to work, what with his constant grieving and drinking and all. The orange wobbled, skin bulging as if something inside were attempting to get out. Wary now, Roland reached down for a stick and gave the fruit a gentle poke with its tip. A faint noise, not unlike the cheep of a newborn chick, escaped from within the orange, the sound accompanied by a small crack in the skin. Roland retreated a step. What in tarnation? The crack widened exposing a set of small, glowing eyes that very much reminded Roland of the time he discovered a bat in his belfry. Within seconds, the creature's horned head was fully visible, shiny black skin like roofing tar. Again, the orange wobbled, then broke from the branch and dropped to the ground. After a moment's struggle, the wee devil, a demon, Roland supposed, clawed its way free from its orange prison and out into the grass, where it looked up with crimson-eyed appeal and chirped, tipping its head back in much the way a chick might upon seeing its mother return to the nest. Roland shook his head. Shit, you think I'm gonna regurgitate something? <laughs> you got another thing coming. The demon shimmied forward, and though Roland's heart was thumping fast now, he nevertheless stood his ground. Horns notwithstanding, there was something strangely endearing about the little fella. But then, he always had been a sucker for baby animals. He knelt down, hands joined to make a platform. Come on, come to daddy. The demon cocked its head, then boldly climbed aboard. It got down on all fours and sniffed voraciously at Roland's fingers, perhaps enticed by the lingering scent of bacon. Roland smiled. <laughs> Ugly little bugger, ain't you? The demon glanced up with narrowed eyes, lips parting to reveal rows of pointed teeth. Roland quickly amended his statement. Uh, ugly in a cute way, I mean. You know, like the duckling in the stories. <laughs> but it was too late. The damage had been done. The offended demon promptly clamped its teeth over the base of Roland's thumb. With a yelp, he shook the monster loose, and in one not-so-fluid movement, swung his leg back and booted it into the air, sending it on a collision course with the trunk of the nearest tree. 
It connected with a whump and fell to the ground below, where it lay silent and unmoving, obviously dead. It was then that Roland noted movement in his periphery, and turned to discover that all of the oranges were now wiggling in the way the first one had just before the hatching. He glanced down at his thumb, then back at the departed demon on the ground, after which he sprinted for the house and barricaded himself behind the screen door, taking up the rifle from the entryway closet as he did so. One by one, the eggs fell, the demons crawling out from beneath piles of orange-peeling shell. Too soon did they discover their fallen brother, or sister, perhaps. It was kind of hard to tell, given the lack of gender-specific parts. On twig-like legs, they surrounded the victim of Roland's boot, whereupon they opened their maws wider than their jaws should have allowed, and issued forth a communal chirp that sent shivers down Roland's spine. He immediately thought back to the spells he'd cast, how he'd blessed the tree's roots a dozen times over to no avail, and how he'd finally given up in frustration and spiked the text to the ground, at which point he'd stated quite emphatically, "'Ow, to hell with it all!' He'd wondered about those six little words, if perhaps they'd initiated something beyond what he'd intended. Could the roots have done as he'd said? Could they have descended to the very abyss of hell itself? Armageddon. June had warned. Perhaps she'd hit closer to the truth than she'd realized. For long seconds, the demons stared at the house, eyes unblinking, bodies as rigid as those of the ceramic gnomes scattered about the yard. Soon thereafter, however, they formed a hellish buffet line and did the unthinkable. They cannibalized the deceased. One by one, they took a bite, minuscule jaws working with piranha-like speed and precision. It quickly became evident that this was not merely a case of hunger, but rather martyrdom, for with the sustenance of the meal, the group became stronger as a whole, as evidenced by their spontaneous individual growth, second by second, inch by added inch. So fascinated was he by this inexplicable rate of development, Roland momentarily forgot about his dire predicament and merely stood there, mouth agape. From infancy to adulthood, in under a minute, like one of those time-lapse photography specials on the Nature Channel. When all was chewed and swallowed, each of the demons stood a full three feet tall. It was at this juncture that Roland returned to his previous state of alarm. Opening the door just a crack, he raised the shotgun, squinted for aim, and fired. He tried again. And again. Only then did it occur to him that he'd expended the last of his ammo to silence a particularly bothersome coyote a few months before. Baby animals he liked— fully grown ones were simply a nuisance. He closed the screen door and locked it, then did the same for the one inside. Heart thumping, he backed into the kitchen, eyes moving from window to window. How long, he wondered, before the demons formed a hellish ladder with their bodies and found their way in through the glass. No sooner had the possibility crossed his mind then a pitch-black head rose above the nearest sill, the creature's teeth bared in a horrific smile. There followed a loud, twisting metal sort of sound, like the screen door being ripped from its hinges. 
that the situation was hopeless dawned quickly. Shaking his head with resignation, Roland sat down at the table to wait. Funny, he thought humorlessly. June always said his laziness would prove the end of him, and yet here he was, about to be eaten by the fruits of his own labor. He chased the irony down with some orange brandy. Well, that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. If Kurt had written this story in the early 80s, there's no doubt in my mind that it would have ended up in Romero's Creep Show, probably with John Goodman playing Roland. That would have been great. Well, feedback from episode 47, The Silver Ring by Joanne Hall. Overall, pretty good feedback. Jay Allen said, I really thought this was a great story, very simple and elegantly written. I wish we had more fairy tales being told these days in short fiction. To contrast that perspective, listener Girl Noir said, This story was perhaps too cliched for my taste. It was really well done, a very visceral story. You really empathized with poor Dell. But for whatever reason, the fairy tale plot turned me off of it. Just a personal preference thing, I guess. Thanks, everyone, for your feedback and discussion. It's always cool to see the different reactions people have to stories. Well, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can copy it and distribute it all you like. If you enjoy the Drabblecast and want to help out, you can send us a donation via our PayPal link on the website to help us pay our authors and keep us going. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to burn them all. Burn them all! A smile cracked his face on the side. Then along to man with cold clammy hands, wire taped around his lapel. And the vampire drawn back was poised and ready to pounce if things didn't go well. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.